Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, as you, I'm sure, recall a couple of weeks ago in our Pride-themed episodes, we spoke about how it was the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which sparked gay liberation movements around the world. And today, I'm very happy to say we have the opportunity to touch on yet another epic event that also took place 50 years ago this very week. It seems that 1969 was quite the year, both in terms of protest and progress, social progress, of course, and scientific as well, because on July 20th, 1969, American astronauts Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to land on the moon. And as most of us recall from elementary school, this was followed a few hours later by Neil Armstrong taking the first human steps on the lunar surface. To say that the moon landing was a highly anticipated event might be the understatement of the century, Cass, (laughs) because an estimated 600 million people from around the world watched it on television, and three major American um, television networks, so at that time that was ABC, CBS, and NBC, they spent approximately $12 million in the course of their coverage, which was a lot of money back then. Yeah, and citizens of the globe were simply captivated. The race to space had heated up actually eight years prior when in 1961, the American president, John F. Kennedy, had publicly stated before a joint session of Congress, quote, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. So his petition to Congress for the funding and manpower to do so was partially in response to the fact that Only the month prior, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin had become the first human being to venture into space. Followed by the United States' own astronaut, Alan Shepard, who just three weeks later became the first American in space on May 5th, 1961. And the rivalry of the Russian and American space programs was just but one expression of Cold War tensions between the two nations that dated back to the 1940s. And the Kennedy administration was determined not to play second fiddle to the USSR in matters of science, technology, and of course, space exploration. As anticipation for the cosmic showdown built across the globe, so also did the public's fascination with all things futuristic. And fashion, of course, was no exception. As fashion historian Elizabeth Way has written, space age fashion turned away from the sophisticated new look lady of the previous decade, signifying the ascendance of youth culture, the confidence of modernity, and in many cases, the evolving position of women in Western society. 
Yes, the spirit and zeitgeist of an era continuously finds expression through dress. And today we are so pleased to have fashion historian Sarah Jean Colbreth join us to discuss space age fashion. Sarah Jean is a research and production assistant in the fashion and material culture department at the Brooklyn Museum, where one of her most recent projects includes the exhibition Pierre Cardin Future Fashion, which is now on view through January 5th, 2020. Sarah Jean, thank you for joining us on track. Welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yay. Let's chat a little bit about your exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum, which focuses on the ingenuity of the French designer Pierre Cardin. And we will largely focus on him today. But in the context of space age fashion, we would be a little bit remiss not to also mention the work of Andre and Coqueline Carege, as well as Paco Rabanne. And I think that some discussion of these other designers' work will naturally work its way into our discussion on Cardin because there are very specific ways in which their stories are all interwoven. Sergi, would you tell us first a little bit about Pierre Cardin's early years and how he first came to fashion? Sure. So Pierre Cardin was, um, he's a French designer, but he was born in Italy in 1922, and he was born one of 10 children. His family moved from Italy to France uh, pretty early in his life, and they settled in Saint-Antienne. And that's where Pierre Cardin started his training with a local tailor. Uh, Cardin said he was seduced by the stage and always imagined himself as an actor or a dancer. But after visiting a tailor in Vichy, which is where he would end up later, um, he knew he wanted to be a couturier. So at the age of 18, he moved to Vichy and in France. Because this was during World War II at this exactly. point. Exactly. Right? So it, right. So France was occupied. And um, in Vichy, he began to learn the trade in earnest. And he worked with a tailor called Monby. And with Monby, he learned to pattern, cut, and sew. He even learned how to hand sew buttonholes. So this was during the occupation. And he took, Cardin took an administrative position with the French Red Cross uh, which he says really served him well later to help him kind of learn how to manage business. And that makes sense because like so many successful designers will tell you that knowing what you're doing in the design world is one thing, but it's really also having that business mind that makes your work successful. Definitely. I think you can be a great designer and be really imaginative, but if it doesn't sell, you can't support yourself. <laughs> so right. it's pretty imperative. But um, after the war, Cardin wanted to work in Paris. So he approached um, Maison Paquin and he had a letter of recommendation. So that he got the job and that's kind of where everything really began. And it was with Paquin that he was able to dip back into his theatrical interests. And he worked with Christiane Burard and Marcel Escoffier to create the costumes for Jean Cocteau's 1946 film, Beauty and the Beast, which is uh, one of my personal favorites. Amazing. So after he left Pekin, he worked briefly for Elsa Scaparelli, and then he moved on to become one of Christian Dior's first employees. So his official title with Dior was Premier d'Italier, which is the head of the workroom. So while he was there, he actually helped to work on the bar suit, which is kind of arguably one of the most important yeah, designs in fashion history. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So Coming from Dior, the aesthetic that Cardin is most known for is quite different. Can you tell us about his work during the 1950s and its trajectory moving forward? Absolutely. Uh, it's really interesting to me that Cardin went from 
the kind of historicism and opulence of Dior to the sleek sort of reduced silhouette of the 1960s that we've come to think of when we think of Pierre Cardin. It's safe to say that his aesthetic development or his aesthetic developed rapidly in the 1950s. And by the turn of the decade, he was really well into the look that he would become known for. So I'll try to kind of briefly explain this trajectory. But in post-war Europe, costume balls and fancy dress functions were all the rage. And celebrities from film, politics, the art world, they would party with socialites and even the royal families. And after Cardin left Dior, he bought a sort of defunct costume house Hmm. with the costume designer Marcel Escoffier. And they found a lot of success designing costumes for these parties. And the success really allowed Cardin the financial and creative flexibility to work on developing his couture designs. That's interesting because there's also like a history there, like beginning with Worth, who oh, also absolutely. did like, like Gilded Age parties, lavish, yeah. over the top costumes. Sometimes that incorporated like real gold and silver and jewels for for the women that were his clients. Definitely, I think that costume design is sort of an in for a lot of designers, uh, especially in these moments of you know opulence, especially you know post war France, which was very you know, unique time. But Cardin began showing couture designs in February of 1950. And the press immediately called out his work for the clean cuts and amusing, kind of amusing, interesting details. And by the mid-1950s, he was showing consistently strong daywear collections, and buyers were actually fighting overseas to see his work. Mm-hmm. And in 1957, he showed his first complete collection, which included cocktail and evening wear. And this is also the year, 1957, that he began to explore these kind of swooping parabolic shapes, which became a theme that echoed through his entire career. And among these so-called lasso design details, the press also acknowledged that his skirts were always like a little bit shorter than than those of other couturiers. So it's not we quite a mini skirt. Coming. Yeah, not quite a mini skirt, but you saw a little bit of knee, which <laughs> in the late 50s was something. So more than a little something. Yeah, definitely. Um he actually went on to launch a a Pret-a-Porter or ready-to-wear collection shortly after this time period that you're talking about. You said 1957. Mm -hmm. He launched this in 1959, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. And it caused quite a hullabaloo in the haute couture circles. Can you tell us why this was such a scandal? Because he was far from the first couturier to create ready-to-wear collections. Yeah, definitely. It's pretty fascinating to consider that this would even be controversial because obviously things are very different today and we don't really bat an eye when designers show both couture collections and ready-to-wear. In fact, I think we sort of understand now that designers can't survive solely on couture sales. Right. But you're right. Cardin wasn't the first to explore the ready-to-wear market. And I think it's important to note that early ready-to-wear and indeed designer ready-to-wear now is not necessarily affordable or even accessible for most people. It's not made to order custom couture, but it's still at a high price point and available at the time it was really only available at high-end department stores. But I think what set Cardan apart and led to this controversy was that he wasn't simply offering a diluted couture look at a slightly lower price point. 
He was accepting, and I'm tempted to say he sort of rejoiced in the fact that French fashion was being copied at all. And in 1958, he said that to copy Paris designs is wonderful, but to change them is ridiculous. <laughs> and so he really, I think he really did want to see everyone, both in Europe and around the world, wearing his designs. And in order to achieve this, he knew that he'd have to explore commercially produced clothing in a new way. So his goal was to democratize his fashion, and he believed that fashion shouldn't be a privilege. He said, uh, if you're going to be copied, you might as well do it yourself. Yeah, I love that so Yeah, much. I do too. <laughs> I mean, it's very true. Everyone gets ripped off. You should just do it yourself. Do it yourself. <laughs> um, so that sort of brings us to the drama. Uh, his first ready-to-wear collection was in 1959, and this was just one year after he had been accepted into the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture, which is the organization that dictates the fashion system in Paris. And I think that his peers in the Chambre Syndicale were kind of scared, because here's this young designer trying to like buck the system and finding success in this rebellious way. So supposedly Cardan was temporarily expelled from the organization. <laughs> and he says that years later, they offered him the position of president, which he kind of refused on principle. Right. It's a rebel. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Change is always scary to some people. It is. Um, and speaking of change, I'd like to talk about this specific moment because in the early 1960s, in, in you know, there was this very changing landscape when it comes to haute couture. And we actually just talked about this a few weeks ago on, on one of our mini-sodes. In 1964, the designer Emmanuel Kahn, who was one of Cardin's closest friends, announced haute couture is dead. What wow. did she mean by this? So I th I think Emmanuel Kahn was voicing an opinion that many designers had in the mid-1960s. Uh, my personal theory is that as fashion became more democratic, consumers were buying clothing that expressed their personal taste as opposed to merely what the Parisian fashion world was dictating. And this, along with the kind of more powerful, younger consumer market, meant that fashion was changing really fast. And we know now that a fast fashion system sees consumers spending less money and purchasing fewer investment pieces. So in other words, this is a perfect storm that posed an enormous threat to the couture system. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I think um, even Paco Rabanne um, at one point said, I think the future is fashion is people buying things that are extremely cheap mm -hmm. and that they will wear only once or twice. Paper dresses. Yeah, right. It's like and disposable. It's come, it's come true. Yeah, and look where we are now. So 1964 um, seems to have been this exceptionally pivotal year um, because as Yves Saint Laurent proclaimed, quote, Things have never been the same since Courage had his explosion. And this is kind of the first time we're going to speak a little bit about mm -hmm. Courage, but he created this collection for his spring-summer 1965 line, which was presented in 1964, that has been called fashion's equivalent of a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and it introduced a mini skirt. It introduced these really futuristic silhouettes that traveled away from the body and allowed for this freedom of movement. And Andre Courage has said of their designs, quote, the clothes float, you don't feel them, 
I don't emphasize the waistline because the body is a whole. It's ridiculous to treat the top and bottom parts of the body separately. And Sarah Jean, I bring this up because this is something that is also at the core of the Cardan look as well. But Cardan has a very specific take on this. Yes? Yes, definitely. So I think that the mid-1960s saw why 1964 and the mid-1960s was so revolutionary was that this was a moment of fashion collective consciousness, and both in Paris and in, in London. I can think of a few times in fashion history where dramatic changes in silhouette occurred in a short amount of time. I think, you know, like the 1920s comes to mind. Mm, or the French Revolution. Exactly. Or, absolutely. or in the wake of. Yeah. I mean, waistlines changing, really all silhouettes and foundation garments mm-hmm. change completely. But I think that the acceptance of the miniskirt was a rare moment of like monumental change mm-hmm. in just years. And so... I feel like designers such as Courage and Cardan were independently exploring this new freedom of dressing, and they manifested this idea with clothes that sort of float away from the body. And Cardan said that if you always dress the bust, the hips, and the waist, which is the way that clothes have been made historically, that you're always going to get the same dress. So for him, I think it was it was not only about freedom, but also innovation and creating a new look. Um, for lack of a better term. Right, which is interesting too because he had actually been part of, of the new the look, Dior new look. Which was all about the waist <laughs> and the hips, I know. Little hypocritical. But most of his work in the 1960s actually hangs from the shoulders and below that it exists independent of the wearer. But I feel like I would be remiss not to mention that this short, loose silhouette was not necessarily accepted and worn by all women, obviously. And I think these male designers saw freedom in their designs, and they assisted in creating this ideal, fashionable body of the 1960s. But I personally think that there was a certain vulnerability inherent in these clothes, and women were more exposed than they had ever been before. And I think that kind of led to this fashion-driven societal pressure to have a very specific body shape. So right. it was it represented freedom, but I don't really know if it offered true freedom for women. Having, you know, sat down in my life as a person, wearing a mini dress when you sit down is not practical. No, especially if you're on the subway. Oh, of course. And for you gentlemen listeners who may not have ever worn a skirt sitting down on the subway, what happens is when you sit down, your skirt actually rises a little bit Mm -hmm. and it can like make you slightly uncomfortable about like how much of your body is actually touching the seat. Oh, totally. Compared to how much of your body is covered. And like a very intimate part of you too. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also too, I want to talk just a little bit about a quote from um, Cardan talking about one of the reasons why he was trying to create these clothes that he felt were so comfortable and that women could move in because it has a very specific relationship to space. Oh, definitely. Right. Right. He envisioned all of these clothes in space and... I think he sort of felt that mini skirts and I mean, his mini skirts were worn over body suits. So it was a little bit different. I think, you know, your body was still covered, even if there was this illusion of kind of like a short skirt, your legs were still covered, but he definitely envisioned all of this in space. So like he's envisioning the wearer getting in and out of a 
like a space shuttle. Yeah, there's actual quotes where he's like, you can wear these when you're climbing the ladder to get in your spaceship. I love that because at the Battle of Versailles, a little off topic, but... No, we've already um, done an episode on Battle exactly. of Versailles. Exactly. So you should all know about the Battle of Versailles and who won, and it was not Pierre Cardin. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, you know, the, the French did very theatrical presentations, and his was the models were exiting a space shuttle that had been rolled onto the stage. So, you know, he he really wanted this for for the consumer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. He was a little obsessed, which we're going to get into exactly. more here in a second. Space obsessed. But first, we are going to take a quick sponsor break. Welcome back. Sarah Jean, I'd like to really get in here right now and speak specifically about the clothes because... What they look like is really important to understand how radical this look was at the time. Can you paint a picture for our listeners of what a quintessential Cardan look was at this time? And and I'd also like to point out that he was designing for both men and women and at a later point, also children. That's true. His clothes are so wild. I mean... Honestly, because his Cardan's clothes in the 1960s were so fantastical, it's sort of hard to describe them in a way that doesn't sound like I'm just making things up. <laughs> um, but uh, one of his more outrageous looks, and this is one that's in the exhibition, is a two-piece ensemble made from like tomato red, shiny vinyl. And the skirt is very short and pleated into a waistband. And the top is a bandeau, sort of like a strapless bra. But there are these clear plastic breast windows that look like rounded porthole windows. And it's almost like windows on a spaceship, except when you look inside, you see breasts. <laughs> um, and so when it was shown on the runway in 1968, which, I mean, that alone, 1968, like you wouldn't even probably see that on a runway now. but. Right. The model wore it with a rounded plexiglass helmet. So, you know, she would be protected while she was at like a lunar discotheque. <laughs> but this ensemble is definitely comical, I think. And and there's a lot of humor in his work. I think like in space age fashion in general, there's a spirit of joy. Absolutely. And optimism. Right. And playfulness. Definitely. I think it's not taking itself seriously. No. Um, I mean, they were being serious about their belief in these changes in fashion, mm -hmm. but they were also like playing around with all these new things and they knew what they were doing. Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, I think museum visitors, or if, even if you just look this garment up online, you're probably going to ask the question that's very often posed at fashion exhibitions, which is, you know, who on earth would wear that? Well, no one on earth. Apparently it's, someone in space. Exactly. That's the irony, right? He imagined it in space, not on earth. So, you know, I think he's a, Cardin was a shrewd businessman and he did what a lot of smart designers do, which is that he presented outrageous, uh, kind of outrageous, nearly unwearable garments, but he also offered like a pared down wearable, but still sort of conceptual version. And so there's also another iteration on view in the exhibition. And that's actually one of my favorites. It's, um, I'd venture to guess that it's one of Cardin's more iconic sort of game-changing dresses. It's a, a black wool crepe 
sleeveless mini dress. And it has a porthole breast situation as well. (laughs) But this porthole element is really just like cutouts that are outlined in this silver vinyl. So it's still a little strange, um, but it was shown, it was shown over a gray Mm bodysuit. So it's this, this visible, invisible illusion of nudity or anatomy, but at the end of the day, the entire body is covered. So those are kind of, I think, an example of his work for women. But you also bring up, you, you brought up menswear and children's wear, which I think is really an important element of Cardan's story. He first showed menswear in 1959, and it became something he offered every season after. And Cardan had a line called Cosmocore that was inspired by astronauts and Russian cosmonauts, and it was for everyone. So all genders, kids and adults. And the suits had sort of rolled collars in lieu of lapels and zippers instead of buttons. And some of these Cosmocore looks were a little more wild. So like a men's zipper jumpsuit with like a leather cod piece on top. But the basic Cosmocore men's jacket was something that could really be worn every day albeit maybe by a more artistic consumer. And so there were a few, quite yes. a few celebrities that adopted this look, right? Right. So Salvador Dali and actually designer Rudy Gernreich mm-hmm. were big fans. Which makes sense because they were on the same page in terms of like unisex or gender-free clothing. Absolutely. I think actually there's a lot of connections that could be made between Rudy Gernreich and Cardan. Um, but also kind of more unexpected people wore his designs. So like Truman Capote was a fan. When I read that, I was like, wait a I, minute. I really, I really need to see a photo of this. I know. And, and we have one and I was <laughs> still kind of shocked, but, um, Oh yeah. And then so Cardin's, Cardin's children's wear, which he launched in the mid 1960s was basically, I mean, as it is usually kind of adult clothes in miniature, but they're complete with small helmet hats and they're very cute. Yeah. Very, very cute. They're adorable. Yeah. Cardin was ever the innovator, not just in terms of his futuristic silhouette surging, but also the materials that he used to create them What was the role of science and technology in his work? So Pierre Cardin has really been inspired by new technologies in textile design from pretty early in his career, but he took it to the next level in the 1960s. I mean, he was using like vinyl, lenticular plastic. Which is kind of shimmery. Yeah, it's sort of like like holographic. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a like a fancy, like the material of like a fancy binder in the 19, like the, like, you know, like the the nineties, we all had one. Yeah. So he was using these sort of interesting materials, even plexiglass. And he was using these materials to create like futuristic details. He was kind of envisioning these materials as being beneficial in space, I guess. Cardan also worked with textile companies to develop new materials. And I think the best example of this is the material he created from Dynell, which was a synthetic woven fabric, and he called it Cardine, Cardan with an E. <laughs> and he used, um, Cardan was using heat to mold shapes into this Dynell fabric. And they kind of like raised from the surface. Exactly. It's so like, like three-dimensional. textile. Totally. So yeah, so he made these great mini dresses with these like three-dimensional elements, like pyramids and flowers and these sort of ambiguous like symbols. And these really became, I think it really picked up, you know, I think now we, um, 
it's these Cardine dresses are in a lot of museum collections. I think we kind of, we think of them as being sort of representative of these new technologies in textile design in the 1960s and embracing synthetics in this really innovative way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that this, this discussion of materials is also an interesting place to talk about his relationship with Paco Rabanne. Mm-hmm. Because Cardin himself has remarked, quote, there was Courage, Paco Rabanne, and I. We all did it at the same time within three months. The modernism of it even now, it was constructing the future. So what was Cardin's relationship to Paco Rabanne? So Cardin and Paco Rabanne met in the early 1960s. And supposedly, you know, you can never, you take everything with a grain of salt. Right. But supposedly... Uh, Paco Rabanne showed Cardan his designs and Cardan gave him some, you know, constructive criticism and suggested that he make a necklace that extends to the floor. And and part of the reason for this was Rabanne at the time was really doing accessories. Definitely. He wasn't making full fashions. He was doing a lot of jewelry, a lot of necklaces, um, focusing on um, innovative plastics, really, at this time. So he was going around shopping these designs around to some of the couturiers that he respected. Right. And so Cardin sort of said, take one of your accessories and make it a garment. Yeah. Which is not obviously not bad advice because Paco Rabanne has said that this idea kick-started his career. And obviously now his disc dresses are really what he's kind of best known for. And can you describe what a disc dress looks like for us? I sort of think of it as almost like chain mail, Mm -hmm. where it's these discs that plastic discs or metal discs that have holes in it or holes in them that these rings connect all the discs together and create a garment. So there's no need for seams or, you know, fullness or anything. It's just Mm -hmm. you add more discs where you want to kind of wrap around the body. And in 1966, Paco Rabanne had his 12 unwearable dresses couture (laughs) collection, and which is so great. I mean, because they were wearable, you could put them on your body. But they were mini dresses made from square and rectangle aluminum plates. So maybe not very comfortable. But it's really funny to me that a couple years later, Cardan actually took his own advice and created a mini dress made from squares of this holographic lenticular plastic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think he 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 recognized it was a good idea. He gave that idea to Paco Rabanne and then sort of used it himself. Yeah, well, I mean, fashion doesn't happen in a vacuum. And one of the things that I have to say, working with all the materials that I work with day after day after day, and looking at, say, different designers work within a same year, there's always a zeitgeist that everyone is kind of like, catching on to. Definitely. People will break off and make these innovations or that innovations. But those moments when those innovations happen are actually fewer and far between when you actually look at the month to month and the year to year progression of fashion. Right. I think that's why it's so hard to answer that question that everyone always wants to know who invented the miniskirt. It's like, well, everyone was experiencing culture And the culture wasn't different. I mean, you know, I think it's easy to say that it was political or it was, you know, based on some sort of change in society. But ultimately, 
everyone was experiencing the world simultaneously. And I think everyone kind of comes to the same conclusion And this is actually going to be at the subject of an upcoming episode. Ooh. So thank you for teasing that for everyone. See, it's collective consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> so Regina, it has been noted that some of the fantasy inherent in Cardin's designs changed after his personal visit to NASA's Houston base in 1969. Um, we've, we've already remarked on the fact that he was obsessed with space. Mm -hmm. But in what way was this trip especially significant? Right. So it was no real secret that Pierre Cardin wanted to visit NASA. In fact, the press even picked up on this and he was always sort of associated with NASA and space travel. But I think the moral of this story is that if you announce publicly that you want something, it's more likely to happen. Because in October of 1969, Cardin and his team and a selection of his models, actually, they all got invited to tour the NASA manned space center in Houston. And Cardan was even allowed to try on one of the astronauts' pressure suits, which he's since claimed is his most beautiful memory, which I think is really poetic and yeah. nice. But before the Apollo 11 moonwalk on July 20th, 1969, and Cardan's trip to Houston, his designs were based mainly on like news and television images. Yeah, so like fantasy. Totally. Because that, that whole genre of what would people wear in space actually dates all the way back to the 19th century. Oh, completely. Like the 1880s and the 1890s, or like if you read certain bits and bobbles of literature, there are entire short stories where people are obsessed with this. Right. I mean, it's something we see every night. So, you, of course, you start to wonder what's on the moon. Right. And yeah, I think, you know, I think his vision of what to wear on space was inspired by even like Voyage à la Lune, you know, these early kind of represent, you know, representations of moon travel and space travel. But in 1967, so this was a couple years before he visited NASA, Cardan said that his aim was to, quote, create an Adam and Eve who are tempted by the light of the moon, who will create new attitudes, a new religion without fear, with an understanding of the cosmos, end quote. So Aww. I think that's really, that's, yeah, idyllic, right? Yeah. But so his, I think his perspective on space where then was a little more mystic and maybe more abstract. Mm -hmm. But after his trip to NASA, I think his clothing became more technical and even a little more streamlined. Of course, this is all relative. I think it's still it's still fashion. It's still deeply impractical. And I don't think anyone would wear a velvet and vinyl helmet and expect it to keep them alive in outer space. <laughs> <laughs> but it was kind of closely mimicking these astronauts pressure suits and you know technically i think he was inspired by them but not not in actually in a technical way right so right. we are going to take another short sponsor break when we come back i'd like to ask you sarah jean about the cardan empire and his endeavors outside of fashion because there are quite a few Welcome back to the future friends. And I say this partially in jest, but not really, because we have not yet mentioned that Pierre Cardin just turned 97 years old a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah Jean, but I think he's currently residing in one of his many estates. I think the last time I read it was a 13,000 square foot mansion in Paris. 
<laughs> Why not? Well, not too shabby. No. Um, you know, but when when he first came to France, it was actually as a political refugee from Italy. You know, you mentioned earlier that, that his family immigrated, but um, this outbreak of fascism was mm-hmm. the reason why this happened. And also Paco Rabanne, yeah. his family immigrated to France. Yeah, it wasn't because they thought France was more beautiful. It yeah. was because they were fleeing fascism. They had to get out. Yeah. And, and I don't think those years um, were easy for either of those families from, from what I've read, which is interesting because aside from his career in fashion, or maybe actually because of his career in fashion, Pierre Cardin went on to build this massive brand that at last count had presence in 110 countries. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about his life, not as a fashion designer, but as a businessman? Right. So Pierre Cardin is really a man of many hats. Um, No pun intended. Or pun intended. Right. Or always (laughs) pun intended. Uh, In addition to his couture fashion, he also owns some pretty incredible properties. I mean, he has a chateau in Lacoste, which is um, this chateau that the Marquis de Sade actually briefly inhabited. And he also has this futuristic house near Cannes, which was designed by the Hungarian architect Antti Lovac. Oh my God, it's, it's amazing. Right. It's Everyone, known as the bubble house. Exactly. The polybule. Yeah. And it looks like that. It's like champagne bubbles or something. We will put images of it okay. on Instagram. Yeah. It's pretty spectacular. Um, it's, it's space. It's like his space age fashions turned into architecture. Basically. Right. It's like if you lived in a cave dwelling in space, mm-hmm. it would look like this. And just like those dresses had with like the bubble breast mm-hmm. things, like the windows in the house look like that. Right. So yeah, this Hungarian architect, uh, Antti Lovag, designed and, and built the house, but it wasn't quite completed when Cardin took over. So Cardin completed it and lives in it and, you know, it's, I think it influences a lot of his work. Yeah. And then there's been a ton of fashion shows that, and, and exactly. events that get held in that. Yeah. A place. Dior resort collection mm-hmm. not too long ago. And, and he has music festivals there. Um, or actually, he has music festivals in Lacoste. But right, it's kind of used as a venue. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Pierre Cardin also owns Maxime's, which, which is crazy. <laughs> The iconic Parisian restaurant. Right. So it's this turn-of-the-century restaurant in Paris that has this, I mean, beautiful, pristine Art Nouveau interior. Every writer, artist that you can think of has probably been there. But Cardin also owns a theater and a venue called Espace Cardin. And I think he was able to purchase all of these really because of his success in licensing his name Mm -hmm. for hundreds of products starting in the 1960s. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question for Mm -hmm. you. Because I, I think he's actually gone on record saying that he doesn't believe in borrowing from banks. Right. So when he was looking to kind of further his like investment dealings, he was using licensing as this way to raise capital. It wasn't like he was publicly training his company. Mm-hmm. He was he was doing all these other deals. And I, I think maybe he has up to 800 licenses, he said in the past. Right. It's a lot. It's a staggering range of products. It is. Um, and, and you know, I was catching up on all things Pierre Cardin to talk to you mm-hmm. and uh, looking at the Asseline book that they did in 2010. Mm-hmm. And they say that the Cardin brand is the eighth most recognized brand in the world, which is incredible. Right. And they're saying like, oh, you know, like maybe uh, Coca-Cola beat him. Mm-hmm. And Mercedes Benz, 
but he's as a person, he's everywhere. Even in the developing world, people know the name of Pierre Cardin because of all of these licensings. Right. I mean, even my, even my dad who, um, I shouldn't say that my dad knows a fair, you know, he knows a little bit about fashion, but my dad knows Pierre Cardin. Right. You know, I, you know, he's just a, he's a household name, I think is the best way to describe mm-hmm. his name. For sure. What role did licensing play in his successes, do you think, besides raising capital? Cardan began to license his name in the late 1960s for products to distribute in higher-end department stores in England and Germany, Japan, Argentina, all of these markets outside of Paris. So his company supervised the design and manufacture of these products and sales were very high. So Cardan has said that thanks to these licenses, he can dress, eat, dwell, sleep, and travel Cardan. But it's definitely his success with these licenses that gave Cardan the freedom to explore new outlets of artistic expression. So this was why he was able to dabble or really not even dabble, kind of succeed in industrial design and these sort of investments and Mm -hmm. new ventures like you know, theaters and, theaters, and restaurants. restaurants. He even has the champagne brand. I know. Maxime's has so many products, like chocolates to tea towels. and mm-hmm. They even everything. had a yacht at one point. I know. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, yeah. Cardan's had everything, I think <laughs> it's safe to say. So that brings us to the present, I guess. So where does Cardan as a fashion brand stand currently? And what do you think the legacy of Cardan is on the runway today? So Pierre Cardin is still working every day and he still shows his collections, but he doesn't really observe the fashion calendar. And I guess it's, so in 2014, Cardin opened the, what he calls the Past, Present, Future Museum. And it's sort of a gallery come archive where he showcases the work that he's created throughout his 70-year career. And I think the name Past, Present, Future Museum is really pretty accurate because he also puts these objects back on the runway in retrospective fashion shows Mm. and loans them out to exhibitions. And I think it sort of serves the purpose of kind of like regularly evaluating his art in in sort of a bigger way. Mm -hmm. I think that Pierre Cardin, as as a designer and I guess as a man, has an interesting legacy in that people in the fashion world really know him as a designer who led the space age trend of the mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. But those outside of the fashion world really know him for his licenses, so right. ties, fragrances, bath towels. But I think it's important to note that if running an empire is something you're interested in, Pierre Cardin's <laughs> brand is currently for sale at the low, low price of 1 billion euro. 1 billion right. euro. So if you... But I feel like Austin Powers. I know, right? If you fancy yourself a Pierre Cardin type, you yeah. can make that happen. Or, or if you want to turn the bubble palace into your evil lair. Right. I think that was like on the market recently for like twenty five million or something I mean, like wild. that. It's like the I, I think it's been called the most expensive property that's on the market in the world at it's, one point. It's also huge. Like it's it's an expensive it has an amphitheater. <laughs> right. It has an amphitheater. It has countless little bubble rooms that you can like live your space age fantasy in. Which are completely decorated in all Pierre Cardin right. interior. Like beautiful products. design. Yeah, beautiful high end furniture. It's really really pretty spectacular. And someday I bet someone will turn it into a hotel. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's on the water. It's got like some fancy pools, mm-hmm. people like that. 
Sarah Jean, before we sign off, is there anything that you would like to add about Cardan or or this moment in general in terms of space age fashion? Yeah, I mean, at risk of sounding sort of sentimental, I guess I've prepared like a little speech about this moment <laughs> in time, this moment in time in regards to like space age fashion or future fashion. Um, I grew up on the so-called Space Coast of Florida, just miles, just a couple miles south of Cape Canaveral. And little known fact, I look like a Floridian. If you can imagine the palest person on earth, (laughs) that is me. Um, But for for every shuttle launch, all of us kids would file outside and we'd stand with mouths agape and eyes wide. And we'd watch this kind of beautiful and powerful example of the human spirit. And when they were manned missions, you know, this example of human bravery. Yeah. And this definitely sounds sentimental, but we're all on this planet together. And I think this is an important anniversary of of the Apollo 11 mission. And it should remind us what we're capable of as human beings. In 1969, it was all about going to the moon and exploring the unknown. But today, I hope the focus can kind of be on, or it can be redirected to how we can increase the longevity of our own planet. Right. So, it's just something we talk about on Dressed a lot. Exactly. And I think that's our responsibility. You know, I think the fashion industry has such a disastrous effect on the environment. And we all know, we all know that it's the second largest source of pollution. So, I think we should all envision the future that we want and ask ourselves does it include needless human suffering and irreversible damage to the planet? Because I think that, you know, future fashion, fashion for the future space age, the future. Earth age should be conscientious, respectful, and in a lot of ways, I think sort of decelerated. I think we're going a little too fast with yeah. fast fashion. And, and you personally make a lot of your own clothes. I do. Yeah. And also you wear vintage. I do. Right. And and so I think I think this is, you know, it's it's not like the fashion industry can entirely go away because it's one of these major movers and shakers in the global economy. I just think there's a better way to do it. I completely agree. I think really thinking critically about what you're wearing, why you're wearing it, and where it was made, that's all that you really need to do mm-hmm. to make an impact. Where, what, why. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Sarah Jean, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how can people learn more if they would like to about Pierre Cardin and, and space age in general? And I bring this up specifically because one of the wonders of the internet is the fact that there is actually quite a lot of video footage out there of these designers that we've been discussing in these, these particular moments in the late 60s and early 70s online. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, If anyone wants to learn more about space age fashion and space travel, I guess in general, I encourage everyone to poke around on the websites for British Pathé. Yes. And also, treasure trove. It really is. Everything's so fascinating and inspiring and kind of goofy sometimes. But also, INA, which is the Institut National de l'Audiovisuel. It's a French website that is basically the equivalent of British Pathé. But there are so many fascinating videos out there. And I think there are also a lot of really special exhibitions opening up in museums around the United States to commemorate 
the anniversary of the moonwalk. So, you know, the, the internet's really cool, but museums are the best. So, so check, yeah, check it out. I mean, everything's better in person. So yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Sarah, thank you for that futuristic blast from the past. April, it is truly staggering the reach of the Cardan universe. He actually once remarked of his fashions that, quote, my favorite garment is the one I invent for a life that does not yet exist, the world of tomorrow. And while he set his sights on styling outer space, he also set his earthbound enterprises out to conquer gourmet food products, home interiors, wine, perfume, cigars and cigarettes, restaurants, furniture, mineral water, beauty <laughs> products. <laughs> And even April, a short-lived luxury yacht. I know. And that's just really more than many lifetimes over of accomplishments, (laughs) especially when you uh, learn that um, he only has approximately 100 people that manage his companies, and they employ approximately 200,000 people. Wow. So I know. Um, and, And just a few years ago, he was even still doing a good portion of the company accounting himself by hand in a ledger. And he was doing this each and every day, keeping (laughs) track of all the business doings, which is truly amazing. I mean, he's 97. Yeah, that's incredible. Dress listeners, I think that does it for us this week. May you consider the future of fashion in your closet next time you get dressed. Join us Thursday for our Fashion History Mystery Minisode, where we answer your questions. If you'd like to write to us with a question, you may do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can, of course, also direct message us with your questions on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Official registration for our June 2020 trip to Paris will open shortly, and we're going to be posting the itinerary in the next few days or this next coming week. And we have already received a lot of interest, so jump on in soon to ensure your spot. And we've been loving all the photos our listeners have been sending of them wearing our dressed merch, which is available, of course, on tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's tee.public.com forward slash dressed. You can get tanks, tees, sweatshirts, and a wide variety of colors and silhouettes. So just check out the drop down tabs for lots of fun options. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch it Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.